Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I think the short answer for me is we have to start actually running workers. I mean, I think that one of the biggest challenges of the left, and when I say the left, I really mean broadly, liberals, progressives, socialists, anybody on the left of the spectrum, is that we've lost non-college educated workers in massive, massive numbers. And one way to win them back, and I, you know, I think that this could be empirically proven if we have the data, Jared and I have started to look into this, but one way to win them back is to start running those people. You know, there's no good reason why we can't be running you know, warehouse workers for Congress and having them articulate the same kinds of politics that Bernie talked about, but igniting a constituency that they are organically much more connected to, right? A constituency in their union and in their neighborhoods that they have a much more organic connection to than, say, the kind of millennial left, the DSA left does by virtue of their position in, in the class hierarchy, right? And I think that's a prerequisite, right? Whenever I talk to my, my family back home, uh, about socialism, like, and I, I try to explain to them what I think a parliamentary socialism or a democratic socialism looks like. The example I always give is is a Congress that has seventy percent of its membership drawn from the working class, because if we're actually going to have a democratic society and we're actually going to represent what the society looks like on the basis of class, then fifty what odd uh, some odd percent of Congress should be non college educated. A huge chunk of Congress needs to be blue-collar workers. A huge chunk of Congress needs to be manual workers. And that's just not the case, right? And it's a crude way of getting at the question, but it's a way that immediately ignites people's self-understanding of class. My family is very class-conscious. My family has always talked about themselves as working class. They've never talked about themselves as middle class. They understand. When I introduced myself at college, when they asked, they do those stupid icebreakers, they say, like, what are three things that you would describe yourself as? One of them was working class. And it was just instinctual for me. So there's, there's a group of working people out there that recognize that they are working class and that they are, you know, a group that exists. But politically speaking, they're not represented anywhere. Right. And I think that we do need to think of how we build an electoral apparatus, not just an electoral apparatus, but also a a sort of social and political apparatus that actually represents working people as working people. And I think one of the failures of, of the contemporary left is the ability to recognize that we are not attached organically to the American working class in any meaningful sense, right? And we need to figure out how we do that because there's nothing, there's nothing really stopping these incredibly popular policies from being championed by a steel worker, you know, from being championed by somebody running for state house in a red district who happens to be, you know, a union coal miner. These are things that we should be exploring and things that we should be trying to figure out how to develop. And for me, that starts with the labor movement. I mean, I think that we have to start with what's left of the organized working class and build out from there because they, it's the only institution in America that has the constituency, the political subject, and the resources to actually do this kind of work, to actually put forward the kinds of candidates that could ignite the non-college educated working class that could get them behind a constituency and that could mobilize the resources necessary to get them over the line. What about the culture war? <laughs> Look, I love everything you're saying, Dustin. I'm fucking, I'm buying what you're selling, my friend. I'm lapping it up like a dog at a dish, you know, uh, with some fresh uh, toilet water, whatever it is that dogs enjoy. Uh, 
<laughs> you know, but 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 what what come coming back down to reality as like Ben and I have been talking about like ad nauseum, unfortunately for you patrons. And like, we've been, uh, we just wrapped up a cancel culture series, which you can't talk about that without, a, you know, aggressively addressing the culture war that's playing out on both sides this is the way I like to put it, you know, and in, in my own somewhat uh, interesting and unique ways, these people have uh, decided to leave the vampires castle and take up shop and it's in the basement. Uh, I think that's right. That that's the one side, and of course, the other side is this vampire's castle, which has turned into a vampire's kingdom, because it's 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 sort of been like, uh, you know, uh, sublimated into the entire liberal, like educated uh, elite class, right? I mean, you you, you're at a bar and you hear people arguing about, you know, um, like how intentions like don't matter. Right. In speech acts. Right. About how, you know, people can be unintentionally racist about like these things that used to be sort of buried in like um, campus activist culture uh, debates are now being played out among the, the, the so-called like normie liberal center. Um, and so the vampire's castle has been trans- transcended to the vampire's kingdom in that way. And the left doesn't seem to offer many other solutions. Uh, thought experiment instead of Sanders, you get uh, a somehow magically um, aged uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez as your banner, uh, you know, banner carrier in 2020. And as good as she is on many, many things, and I'll stand for her in many places. Think about the, the the key differences there in rhetoric and and in in an inability to to draw in new constituencies. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the this is the kind of crisis we're in inside the Democratic Party. And I've, I've toyed with trying to figure out a, a succinct way of putting this. But I think that there's this wedge in the party right now. And for lack of a better word, you have the unwoke but unleft in Joe Biden. And he's kind of the last of a dying breed, totally uninterested in doing any of the rhetorical moves that the younger progressives are very accustomed to. And seems almost totally alien to them by his complete disinterest in anything that smacks of PC culture or wokeness. And then on the other side, you have the hyper-woke but left uh, progressive elements in the party. Now, my big fear is that both of these wings can't really mobilize much of the constituency we need. Because Joe Biden will probably take a bigger share of the non-college educated working class, but that is a smaller share of the Democratic Party now than it ever was. And I think the the very woke but economically left part of the party is unable to break out of the urban enclaves in which they've been sort of, they, they've come accustomed to, right? You're, politicians are creatures of their environment. And if your politicians are coming out of the deepest blue districts across the country with a very young constituency, they are going to think, not stupidly, but they are going to think and act as if their constituency represents a much larger swath of the American public than it does. And that's one of the big challenges, is I think many of the victories we've had on the left have come out of the deepest blue liberal districts. And as a result, they're kind of alien to many parts of the country which don't look or sound like that. And our challenge is kind of skirting a kind of third way, if you will, which says we are going to be left-wing, staunchly left-wing economically. But when it comes to the PC culture and when it comes to the woke stuff, we're going to have to draw a line. And we're going to have to say, look, this stuff just simply isn't part of our program. We're not against it. 
We're not for it. It's just not something we're going to be emphasizing day in and day out. And the example I always give for this is, look, the Republican Party has been trying to destroy OSHA. It's been trying to destroy the minimum wage. It's been trying to destroy the post office for the past hundred years, right? It's never campaigned on those issues. It has never went to purple districts and said, we want to destroy your health and safety on the job. And we want to destroy your way of being able to have mail delivered to you in rain, sleet, or snow. They never say that. And the reason why they never say it is they recognize it's wildly unpopular. So they campaign on the things they know they can win swing voters on. Now, for us, the challenge is we don't know yet if we can win swing voters on our left-wing economic program. But I guarantee you we cannot win them on a far left-wing cultural agenda. But we might be able to win them on a left-wing economic agenda. We have to try. And I think where we've seen some success with this in places like Pennsylvania and Michigan, where unions have pretty strong committees on political education or, or PACs or uh, independent committees for political action, where, what they've done is they've focused squarely on union issues. That's all they talk about on the campaign trail, the kinds of issues that union workers care about and that union communities that have high union density care about, right? Healthcare, wages, jobs. And it's not like when they get into office, they vote with the Republicans on the cultural shit. They vote straight line liberal on all the stuff. But when they campaign, they're not talking about gun. They're not talking about gun control. They're not talking about a lot of the issues. They're certainly not talking about abolishing the police, right? But they are talking about the bread and butter issues that actually mobilize a lot of non-college educated workers to get out to the polls. And that has to be, to me, a real serious concern for how we move forward. And I think to many leftists, when they hear that, they think one of two things. One, they think it means you're throwing people under the bus, which is just, to me, an asinine political conclusion, because any strategic evaluation has to involve priorities. And if you believe that prioritizing means that the other things on your agenda are suddenly bullshit and you don't care about them and you're willing to like let all of these other things just disappear, then you simply don't understand politics. But the second reaction to it is a misunderstanding of the way in which people actually digest political ideas. Because many times you'll hear on the left, well, we have to agitate for this unpopular thing so that we can make it popular. Well, that can work sometimes, but it can only work if the nascent political conditions are, are available to make that policy agenda issue popular. And, and probably so many, not going to work if, if, uh, if you're trying to do it with 20 different things at the same time. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, they also have to like you. Right. I mean, let's be they have to like you and they have to trust you. This is what Ben and I have been like beating the shit out of for the past couple of months is like we got to be a left that people want to be a part of. And shouts out to our late brother, Michael Brooks. I'd be remiss in not bringing him into this conversation, pour one out for the man, because that's something that, you know, we've been saying, I know, but he said it better than most, which is like got to have a left that people want to be a part of. So that that's a big thing, too. Right. Is that, you know, in order to agitate whatever the hell that's supposed to mean. Right. Um, yeah. People got to actually identify with you in the first place to take your word for it. Why, why should they believe yeah. you? And, and, and on that theme, right, I, I also wonder if we could make some distinctions uh, as, far as, as far as the culture war question, because, um, you know, because there are things like presumably that, uh, that are 
you know, that are actually tied to a concrete policy issue that we care about, uh, that, you know, like things that are, you know, unfinished business for the 60s rights revolution, you know, about, um, you know, anti-discrimination ordinances, you know, things like that, that, you know, that um, where, um, where, where, you know, we can, we can have a tactical and strategic discussion about what's emphasized electorally, right? But that the actual, the actual position matters, right? But then there's a lot of cultural war stuff that even that isn't true of, that like, it's, it's, that it's not tied to anything uh, where, where, where the position matters. It's just sort of like weird, like... Pure rhetoric. Yeah, it's, 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 it's pure rhetoric. It's pure, um, you know, professional managerial class, uh, you know, social cultural mores and, uh, and, and manners. Uh, it's, it's like a certain kinds of weird games that people, people play on social media. Uh, and my deep insight here is that as far as I can tell, most people hate that shit. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Oh, absolutely. And I think on your first point though, Ben, like the left also has to take stock of where, where we've won. I mean, you can easily run a campaign on the kinds of sixties rights revolution questions and win the kinds of voters we want to win because those questions are no longer controversial. And it's not the case that if you run saying that you're going to defend anti-discrimination law, you're just suddenly going to lose all these white workers. That's just not true. There's been a remarkable shift culturally in this country where things like racism and sexism are genuinely thought of as wrong and bad, right? That is a good and successful project that we have, as a left, succeeded in making happen. Now, the right is doing their damnedest to reverse those gains, but there's no reason why that necessarily means we have to do the second step, which is the only way to further the rights revolution is to push these kind of very maximalist and very unpopular uh, destruction of basic cultural mores, right? Basic cultural understandings of who we are as people and what, what our lives are like and things like this. I just don't think those are things that are going to appeal to many people. And politically, they don't have very much payoff. Because so step one, we should abolish the family is what actually. you're saying, essentially, right? What'd you say, sir? Abolish the family, for sure. That needs to be the right. that's, class that's, that's a classic. Um, I think that we should all definitely give up any consumer uh, behaviors that, that maintain our sanity for the sake of uh, staving off global warming. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just throw a little uh, humor in there to give some relief for the sense of kind of what we're up against. Like, again, what you're saying makes so much fucking sense. I'm here for it. Sign me up. Uh, I just have to bring us back down to earth from time to time as you're spitting so much truth here uh, to kind of reveal the, the, uh, like the contrast that, you know, that the, let's be honest, the extraordinarily powerful um, institutionally speaking and otherwise uh, contrast that we like hardcore, no holds barred, uh, you know, historical materialist motherfuckers like us are, are up against This concludes your free teaser of this week's B-Side. Head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe today to hear the rest of this episode and to double your DPS pleasure each week.